Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Russian President Vladimir Putin called the U.S. dollar's drop in dominance, quote, objective and irreversible during the recent BRICS summit in South Africa as Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa formally agreed to use local currencies instead of the U.S. dollar. It's the first shoe to drop. As demand for the dollar weakens, the buying power of the dollar also weakens. That's why Birch Gold Group is busier than ever. Investors and savers are looking to harness the power of physical gold held in a tax-sheltered IRA. Text Monica to 989-898 for your free info kit on gold. Thousands of happy customers, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and countless five-star reviews, you can count on Birch Gold to help you navigate transitioning an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold. As the U.S. dollar continues to receive pressure from foreign countries, digital currency, and central banks, arm yourself with information on how to protect your savings. Just text MONICA to 989-898 to claim your free info kit from Birch Gold Group right now. Hey guys, I'm Monica Crowley, and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Thursday. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. Don't forget to check me out on social media, Instagram at Monica Crowley underscore, and Twitter and through social at Monica Crowley also by email, I am at Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. Monica Crowley Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. So drop me a note. Let me know what's on your mind. I love hearing from you guys. You guys are so smart. You're on top of everything. And I really love your feedback. So drop me a note at any time. All right, next week, we've got big shows coming up. You're not going to want to miss a second of this as we begin to close out the month of July. Can you believe it? I mean, the summer is just flying by. I don't know if you guys feel the same, but this summer has been so weird. (laughs) It's been weird. It's been weird, just sort of like, you know, nationally, internationally, a lot of different stuff coming at us, none of it good. Um, And it's just given this summer like a very weird vibe to it, like not a lot of energy. Maybe it's just where I am in the Northeast. Maybe it's different where you guys are. I hope you're all enjoying your summers uh, because we've got all this madness, but you know, you only get one life on this earth. Um, And I hope you guys are really enjoying it despite all the craziness. We're going to actually, next week, we are going to take a break from the madness because honestly, I believe it's all too much. We have to deal with it. We're going to deal with more of it today. 
Obviously, we're in a war for the future of the country and the left never rests. But I think that it makes us more effective warriors on our side to take a break once in a while. And so one day next week on this show, we actually are going to take a break because we're going to cover something different. But I think it is imperative, the subject that we're going to cover, I think it's imperative for all of us to get back in touch with the idea of happiness. Because there is so much anguish depression, isolation, anxiety, despair out there, including among all of us who are trying desperately to be happy warriors. I consider myself a happy warrior, but sometimes it's difficult given what is constantly just coming at us, the the never-ending assault by the communist left. So next week, one day, we're going to be joined by a very special guest on the concept of happiness. And I want to do a deep dive into this because before we get into August and you know what's coming in August, we've got the first GOP debate. Will Trump show up? Will he not show up? We're going to get into all of that. August is going to be hot and heavy. And certainly once we clear Labor Day, I mean, we're off to the races in terms of the primary uh, voting, uh, the RNC, how we're going to manage next year's election, the crisis plan that the left has ready to go. We're going to deal with all of it. We're going to be clearly in election season come Labor Day. Um, So as we sort of clear this bar next week, the last week of July, I do want to do a little bit of a a palate cleanser. And we're going to speak to, again, somebody I have been dying to talk to for a really, really long time. It's going to be a surprise guest. That's going to be one day next week on this show. And trust me when I tell you, you're going to love that show. Really, it's going to make you happy to talk about happiness Okay. Also next week, I want to do a deep dive into a huge issue that's not getting much coverage at all because either people don't understand it or they're afraid of it. And the issue is digital ID, digital identification. This is one of the most dangerous things headed our way. And whether you want to focus on it or not, it is extremely dangerous, and it is coming. It's pretty far down the track here, guys. I know, you know, people are not focused on it. There's so many other things to focus on. I get it. But I really want to spend a a good deal of time talking about this because it's going to be upon us before we know it. And a digital ID is connected to everything. It involves people, entities, governments, uh, your devices, they are going to restrict your freedom. In fact, erase your freedom with digital IDs connected to vaccine passports, travel, access to government benefits, your health care. All of it is going to be centered on a digital ID. You're not going to be able to move. You're not going to be able to breathe. They're going to determine how you live, what you eat, where you go, and when. And when I say they, I mean the state. This is all part of a command economy and a command society along the lines of exactly what the CCP has established in China. 
They're all on the record here. All of these globalists, they're all on the record admiring the CCP model of the police state, the surveillance state, uh, digital IDs where their eyeballs are scanned on every corner so that the state knows exactly where they are, who they're with at any given time and what they're doing. And if they overstep and do something that the state doesn't approve of or doesn't like, let's say you put out a tweet that's critical of Merrick Garland, boom, your car is shut off. Your access to your money is shut off. A big part of this is central bank digital currencies where they want to move all of us to a cashless society. You know, yesterday I was in a parking lot and I saw a penny and I still bend down to pick up pennies. Okay. I still do it. Do you guys do it? Drop me a note. Let me know. Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com. Let me know if you guys still pick up. When I see money, even a penny, nickel, dime, quarter, anything on the ground, I will pick it up. And I picked it up and I looked at it and I thought, this is what they want to get rid of. They want to get rid of cash. And, you know, they're going to sell it as convenience. So you just swipe a card or scan your retina and you can walk out of a store. In fact, you know what, you guys forgot about this. The other day I was at LaGuardia and I think it was LaGuardia and I'm walking through and they had, um, there was a store That was a cashless store. I guess it's like a pilot program. And I think you had to swipe your credit card to get into the store. But nothing was charged until you walked out. You didn't have to go to a register, whether it was a manned register or an unmanned register, which, by the way, I hate. I hate that self-checkout with every fiber of my being. Do you guys agree? Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com. I hate like you go into a grocery store and you got to scan and bag your own stuff. I frigging hate it. I want to deal with the person. I want the person swiping. Okay. I I hate it. But this store at the airport was you scanned your, um, your credit card before you walked in and then you were allowed in. It was like a turnstile. So swipe, turnstile moves, you walk into the store, you pick up what you want. And I guess as you are leaving the store, those items have a QR code or something. And as you're walking out of the store, there's nobody in there. Um, Those three items are immediately beeped into a system and attached to your credit card. So it was like beep, 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 t-shirt, water, uh, fruit salad, right? So those th- three things as you're walking out of the store are scanned while you're holding them and you're leaving the store and boom, your credit card is automatically charged. This scares the crap out of me. And this is the direction that we are going, guys, okay? So next week, we're going to have a massive conversation about all of this with our friend James Melville. He's based in the UK. The the UK, the European Union, they are even further down the track than we are in all of this. You need to know what is going on so that you are armed and that we can all fight back against it. All right? Now, today I want to deal with the IRS whistleblowers and the depth of corruption. And I want to deal with the communist cultural revolution we are in right now. Coming up later today, 
we're going to have a very special conversation with Chris Rufo, a true warrior against all of the economic Marxism infecting corporations, academia, government, all of it. Chris has been a pioneer against ESG, DEI, and all of the alphabet soup Marxism killing our economy and culture. He is going to be here in just a couple of minutes to take it all apart and give us solutions. Also today, speaking of the Cultural Revolution, I want to deal with the Jason Aldean song, Uproar. Try that in a small town. Because guys, all of this is of a piece. But first, the Monica Memo. Money talks, BS walks. There has never been a more explosive example of that than the Biden crime family. They are up to their eyeballs in foreign money, while their BS walks. Their BS, meaning Joe and Hunter, and of course the rest of the family, but they're sort of irrelevant. Their BS is Joe and Hunter. Those two BS artists walk. They walk away unscathed from all of their crimes while they're getting richer by the day from foreign nationals pouring money, millions of money, tens of millions of dollars into their coffers. Money talks, BS walks. More of their despicable corruption is being exposed every single day. So, of course, they're getting ready to indict Trump again. Trump put out a statement a couple days ago saying that Jack Smith deranged Jack Smith, the special counsel whose sole job it is to indict and try to get convictions on Donald Trump to marginalize him and uh, get him out of the race for next year, removed off the ballot. So Jack Smith has warned President Trump that an indictment is imminent. And I am talking to you this morning, this Thursday morning. It could come today, later today, could come tomorrow, could come at any time. But again, this is like clockwork, guys. They're so predictable. They are so predictable with their sick corruption. The people who should be impeached and indicted are Joe and Hunter Biden. Those are the people who should be facing the full force of the U.S. government in terms of law enforcement, indictment, impeachment, convictions. But no, they face none of that because money talks and BS walks. The person actually facing all of this is Donald Trump. This is how upside down and inverted and sick our society is, our government is, all of the levers of power are. So yesterday you had two extraordinary men come forward at great risk to themselves, their positions, their livelihoods, their families, their reputations, Gary Shapley of the IRS criminal division and Joseph Ziegler of the criminal division at the IRS. These men, it cannot be overstated how courageous and brave they are. In this society, telling the truth is an act of rebellion. I think George Orwell said something very similar to that. Telling the truth in this kind of environment is an act of rebellion. And I give these two gentlemen enormous credit 
we should all praise them and support them however we can because they have taken so many slings and arrows for coming forward to blow the lid off the Biden, DOJ, and FBI corruption and IRS and Treasury corruption. I mean, these are IRS career agents. They're not political appointees. I had two years at the Treasury Department, and I worked with careers. I worked with my fellow political appointees. They're all supposed to work together for the cause of the country and for the cause of law, the rule of law, enforcing the law equally. And we certainly did that in the Trump administration. But the second the administration was over and Biden came in, all of that went out the window. Guys, we are talking about the most fearsome government agencies in the country, in the world, really. The FBI and DOJ that have the ability to ruin your life and take away your freedom by imprisoning you, and the Treasury Department and the IRS, which also has the ability to do all of those things, plus bankrupt you. DOJ and FBI have that power too, with legal costs. It's lawfare. So these two gentlemen who have been, you know, hip deep in international uh, corruption and cases that go way back 20 years. I mean, these gentlemen have been in the IRS criminal division for a very long time, and they are careers. And in fact, one of the two, Joseph Ziegler, um, is a lifelong Democrat and a gay man who is married to his partner, and so the, the left yesterday watching this testimony, they had no idea what they were dealing with. They didn't know how to deal with him. Mr. Ziegler, thank you for being here. And then they tried to rip apart what he was saying, but they had no facts. So it was just like, it was like an exercise in, um, I don't know, it's an exercise in laughter and an exercise in laughs. You know, I'm watching the Democratic side We have very serious issues here in allegations of deep, deep corruption and crimes. And the Democrats, because they have no facts on their side and because they're so desperate to protect Hunter and Joe, that they will contort themselves into giant pretzels. All they did was raise completely irrelevant information. Irrelevant stuff. I mean, you saw, you know, you saw members of of Congress there on the Democrat side, AOC and others, uh, raise racism, raise the incarceration, raise the incarceration rate for minorities. I mean, completely irrelevant stuff they use their time for, rather than ask these two gentlemen questions. Some of them did. But they had no facts on their side and they got all messed up on dates and they had no facts and they were all screwed up. The Democrat Party is a clown car. But because they have all of the levers of power in government, big tech, the culture, Hollywood, uh, the propaganda press, they are protected in every way. So they can go out and lie all day long and nobody calls them on it except for us. And there are some others in the media, thank goodness, We're out there in the alternative media doing this, but the propaganda press will not cover it. By the way, literally will not cover it. CNN and MSNBC refused to cover this uh, this, uh, day-long hearing yesterday. 
Can you imagine if the allegations were against Donald Trump? We saw wall-to-wall coverage of all of the bogus BS stuff, that the impeachment trials, all of it, right? We saw wall-to-wall coverage, the January 6th uh, bogus commission, all of that was 24 hours a day on these propaganda networks. But the actual truth about Joe and Hunter Biden, oh, no, no. They were covering Donald Trump yesterday. Let's get into some of what was covered uh, yesterday, and I do want to get into Jason Aldean as well before we talk to Chris Rufo. All right, so here is part of the IRS whistleblower Joseph Ziegler Again, a lifelong Democrat, a gay man, married to his partner. Here is part of his opening statement. I've recently discovered that people are saying that I must be more credible because I'm a Democrat who happens to be married to a man. I'm no more credible than this man sitting next to me due to my, actual, due to my sexual orientation or my political beliefs. The truth is, my credibility comes today from my job experience with the IRS and my intimate knowledge of the agency's standard and procedures. Very powerful opening statement from him. And what he is saying is, look, it doesn't matter. People might consider me more credible because I am a gay man and because I'm a Democrat. But no, my credibility comes from the oath that I took to uphold the rule of law and apply it equally across the board. That's where my credibility comes from. I mean, it's an obvious statement, but nobody says it anymore because it's not really true anymore, right? Except he believes it's true and it should be true and good for him for saying it. Here he is again, where he is talking about uh, the case and he's talking about Hunter Biden's false tax returns. Now, by the way, if you file a false tax return, your life will be ruined and rightfully so. The IRS will come for you for your last penny. You know that penny I picked up in the uh, parking lot? They will come for your last penny. They will come to me for that. Okay, maybe I shouldn't have said it on the air because now it's probably taxable. And they're going to say, Monica, you didn't didn't, uh, declare this on your tax return. So you try not to list anything and you are going to get, I mean, you try any of this stuff and you're going to get nailed to the wall. But here is Mr. Ziegler, the IRS whistleblower, saying that there's nothing that shows that Hunter will be required to actually amend those false tax returns for 2018. Listen. Thus, as I read the public documents as the Department of Justice action against Hunter Biden, there's nothing that indicates Hunter Biden will be required to amend his false tax return for 2018. A false tax return that includes proper deductions, improper deductions for prostitutes, sex clubs, and his, chi- and his adult children's tuition. So what we do know is that for a number of years, uh, I think starting from 2014, certainly 2014, 2015, uh, he's talking about 2018, Hunter for multiple years was filing uh, false tax returns just flat out lying on his tax returns, not an oversight. He didn't overlook anything. He was deliberately lying on his tax returns. Remember when the Democrats were going crazy because Trump would not release his tax returns? And then finally, they were leaked out of the IRS, which is also a crime. Nobody held accountable for that. And they were leaked and 
uh, Trump's tax returns were all perfectly fine. Rachel Maddow and others tried to make a big thing out of it. There were no crimes in there. Trump did nothing wrong. But Hunter Biden, over multiple years, lying on his tax returns, no consequence for that at all. Plus, thanks to these whistleblowers and Marjorie Taylor Greene yesterday, who was, she was in rare form, Hunter was deducting hookers and sex clubs from his taxes. Marjorie Taylor Greene yesterday put up explicit photos of Hunter having sex with prostitutes, also talking about the Mann Act, which is a a law that prevents anybody from moving people across state lines for the purpose of paid sex. So violations all over the place here, uh, uh, breaking of the law all over the place. Hunter was actually deducting the cost of the hookers, probably his cocaine too, got to deduct the blow, and sex club membership. $10,000 to uh, join a sex club. He was deducting that from his taxes. But you try to deduct a charitable contribution to the Salvation Army, and they're going to go through that with a fine-tooth comb. Meanwhile, the middle class, you, me, everybody, or most people listening to the show, You are now going to pay for an army of 87,000 new IRS agents to uh, examine every $25 Venmo that you've gotten. Try deducting a $10,000 sex club membership. See how that goes for you. See what your accountant has to say about that. Uh, and here is the other IRS whistleblower, Gary Shapley, who is an absolute hero. He was the first one to come out publicly. Uh, he gave Mr. Ziegler, I guess, enough political cover and courage to come forward as well. But here is the original uh, whistleblower talking about how Merrick Garland and Joe Biden, their Justice Department, allowed Biden's political appointees to weigh in on a criminal case, which should never happen. I, at the Treasury Department, as a uh, political appointee, could never in a million years go to the IRS criminal division and start weighing in on cases. No way. But that is exactly what happened in the Hunter Biden case. Listen. The Justice Department allowed the president's political appointees to weigh in on whether they're charged the president's son. After United States Attorney for D.C. Matthew Graves, appointed by President Biden, refused to bring charges in March 2022, I watched United States Attorney Weiss tell a room full of senior FBI and IRS senior leaders on October 7, 2022, that he was not the deciding person on whether charges were filed. That was my red line. That was my red line, said Mr. Shapley. Yeah, because the U.S. Attorney in Delaware, David Weiss, He was supposedly the one that had free reign to charge Hunter in whatever jurisdiction he wanted. Well, these whistleblowers came forward and said, absolutely not. Nope. It went above him. It went to the Washington U.S. attorney, Matthew Graves, who stepped all over this case and blocked it at every turn. By the way, Matthew Graves, 
is also the prosecutor in Washington going after all of the January 6th defendants. Violent, nonviolent, doesn't matter. He's going after all of them. You know, Ro Khanna yesterday, this Democrat from California, he went out there and he was accusing Mr. Shapley of being, quote, a stickler for the law. Isn't all of their jobs to be sticklers for the law? In the case of these IRS investigators, that is literally their job to enforce the law, to be sticklers for the law. Literally their job. And members of Congress also, literally their job. The President of the United States is the nation's chief law enforcement officer. He's got cocaine floating around his White House. They're all supposed to be sticklers for the law. And then Ro Khanna said, quote, it reminds me of Les Mis. And the famous person wanted to get the person who had a sandwich. So really minimizing all of this. You know what I want to say to Ro Khanna? You know, a congressman, if that's your, your application, if that's your, your sense that oh, you don't have to be a stickler for these lower level crimes, which, by the way, Hunter's crimes are not lower level at all. They're very serious. They're felonies, which is why all of these whistleblowers are saying we were moving on felonies on Hunter Biden. And we were blocked by Matthew Graves in Washington. We were blocked by Merrick Garland. We were blocked by the DOJ. We could not pursue felonies, minor charges, ratcheted down to misdemeanors and allowing Hunter to do a plea deal. But Ro Khanna, you know what I want to say to him? He's accusing these whistleblowers of being sticklers for the law. Okay, so now do the thousand plus January 6th protesters who have not been charged with violence, but are being assaulted every day by the DOJ and FBI. Sticklers for the law. Meanwhile, all these Democrats certainly want uh, the DOJ and the FBI and Alvin Bragg and the Georgia prosecutors to be sticklers for the law when it comes to Donald Trump. So sticklers for the law when it's against conservatives, Republicans, Donald Trump, the America First movement. But don't be a stickler for the law when it comes to Democrats like Joe and Hunter Biden. This is the depth of corruption that we are dealing with. Further yesterday in this hearing, it, uh, it was revealed by the whistleblowers that in fact, Uh, And Shapley told the committee, quote, I can say that there were investigative steps that involved President Biden that were not allowed to be taken. Information like this would have been really helpful to have for investigators when we received any pushback, when we were asked to take names on a document or search warrants. It would have been nice to have information that helped to prove the case. Well, you think? So what was revealed yesterday is that Joe Biden is named as a beneficiary of all of these payoffs. And uh, just to be clear, it came out yesterday by the chairman of the Oversight Committee, uh, James Comer, who's been a guest here. Um, 
questioning uh, Mr. Ziegler and Mr. Shapley that it's upwards of approximately $17 million came into the Biden crime family from foreign nationals between 2014 and 2019. Approximately $17 million from places like China, Ukraine, Romania, and other places. Okay, so Comer has also said, and others have said, this 17 million is like the tip of the iceberg. That it's actually much more extensive than that and could be upwards of a hundred million dollars. This is how Joe Biden, who's been a U.S. senator, vice president, and now president, air quotes, uh, his entire adult life, this is how he can afford three homes. That Rehoboth Beach house is pretty darn nice. So is the Delaware House on a government salary? Mm, I don't think so. So it was revealed President Biden is involved in this. And this went, you know, pretty much, first of all, none of this would have happened if Biden had not been in high office, particularly the vice presidency. And now, of course, he's president. So they're all calling in their chips, China, Ukraine, you name it. They're all calling in their chips because they own him. That is the point of all of this, guys. All of it. The whistleblowers also talked about uh, how people were afraid to ask questions, including them, because the DOJ and the FBI put these investigations on ice and really chilled everybody from coming forward and and actually really carrying out an investigation that should have been carried out according to the law. They were being intimidated. The depth of corruption is so severe, and what's really, really scary is that they don't care. It's right in our faces now. They honestly just don't care because they control everything. Getting out of this is going to be an uphill battle, but we're going to need everybody on board to do it. It's going to take all of us to begin to turn this around and elected political leadership on our side who understands that the hour is very late and understands what it is going to take to turn this around. That is a form of the Marxist revolution that has been underway in this country for a long time. And now, you know, in Marxist communist societies, this kind of corruption is right out there. It's just, it's right out there. And the people Because they have no weapons, so never give up your guns. Because they have no weapons and no power, the people have to sit there and take the corruption. That is the attitude that the left is now taking. That we have to take it because we're stripped of our power and they know it. The other part of this equation is the cultural revolution. And what is happening to Jason Aldean here, who's a country music star, he's an extraordinary human being as well, very, very talented. And, you know, I kind of liked him before. I'm not a huge country music fan, but I did know of his songs and like them. But now I like them even more. And I like him even more. And if you haven't already, go and download Try That in a Small Town by Jason Aldean. Go to iTunes, wherever you get your music, and download it. Let's keep it number one. Because this attack on him from the left, that they're claiming that the the video and the song is racist, because what it does, the, the video and the song actually depict social decline in leftist America, blue America, 
where Antifa and Black Lives Matter are burning down those cities last year, but also the, the, the broader decay that we have seen in, in leftist cities put up against small town values of patriotism and, and God-fearing people. You know, the people, regular Americans like you and me, who do not want to see this place burn to the ground, both literally and metaphorically. The video um, for the song has all kinds of news clips and, and videos of the violent protests, rising crime, flag burning, other kinds of uh, madness being experienced in our cities, and suggests that that kind of behavior won't fly in a small town because it won't. So he was attacked, and also part of the video, he's in front of the uh, courthouse in Tennessee, and the left is saying, well, that was a site for a lot of lynchings. Well, it was also a site for a lot of movies have been made there and so on. This song, by the way, was released in May. It's now the end of July. So they had no problem with it for a while until somebody stumbled on it and decided to make it into a thing and created this huge leftist backlash. Well, Jason Aldean took to Twitter and absolutely defended himself. He said, in the past 24 hours, I've been accused of releasing a pro-lynching song, a song that has been out since May, and was subject to the comparison that I, direct quote, was not too pleased with the nationwide BLM protests, he wrote. These references are not only meritless, but dangerous. There is not a single lyric in the song that references race or points to it. And there isn't a single video clip that isn't real news footage. And while I can try and respect others to have their own interpretation of a song with music, this one goes too far, he wrote. And then his wife took to Twitter and she wrote, never apologize for speaking the truth. Amen to the Aldeans. Thank you, Jason, for doing this song. Thank you to Brittany Aldine for never apologizing. You never bend the knee to the mob, ever, because it's never enough. And they're trying to cancel him. Well, we had news for them because we turned around and took the song, Try That in a Small Town, and took it straight to number one. Just like we are taking Sound of Freedom to number one in the movie theaters. Sound of Freedom is now closing in on $100 million. Hollywood cannot imagine this. They can't understand it. Hollywood sat on this, including Disney, sat on this movie for years. Ask yourself why. But now we are feeling our own power. And we are taking companies like Disney, Target, Ben & Jerry's, uh, Anheuser-Busch, And we are taking our dollars elsewhere and really gutting these companies while taking other things like Try That in a Small Town by Jason Aldean and Sound of Freedom and supporting them with our dollars and our tushies in the seat. And that's what's getting them noticed, right? That's what's getting their attention. We are now starting to feel our own power. Download the song. Let's send a signal. Left is sending the signals all day long, right? Our corruption right in your face. Our power right in your face. Our crimes right in your face. Well, we can use our power too to put our values and our patriotism and our America first in their face. Let's keep doing it. 
All right, let's hit a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk to the one and only Chris Rufo about America's Cultural Revolution. He's got a new book by that title. We're going to talk to him about all of that and more straight ahead. Sit tight. As central banks in countries like China, India, and Australia begin transitioning to a digital currency, the Federal Reserve has been contemplating the same for the U.S. With a digital currency, the government could track every single purchase you make. Officials could even prohibit you from purchasing certain products or even easily freeze or seize part or all of your money. These are some of the reasons concerned Americans are reaching out to Birch Gold Group. They want to have a physical asset that's independent from the U.S. dollar. Gold held tax-sheltered in a retirement account. Learn if gold is right for you, too. Text MONICA to 989-898, and they will send you a free info kit on gold. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, thousands of happy customers, and countless five-star reviews, Birch Gold has been helping my listeners from the very beginning. Text MONICA to 989-898 and claim your free info kit on gold because if a central bank digital currency becomes reality, it'll be very nice to have some gold to depend on. Well, as I mentioned, we have a very special guest here uh, next to talk about probably the most important issue facing all of us, and that is this rolling Marxist revolution that I've been talking about for a very long time. I talk about it here on the show all the time, and I'm sure some of you roll your eyes, but you need to know what's going on because this is not a dynamic that just began under Joe Biden or even Barack Obama. This has been going on literally since the 1930s, began as a KGB operation to infiltrate and destroy our country from within. And the point about where we are now is that this is the end point. This is the end game. This is the tipping point that the communists, both here and abroad, have been working for and towards literally for almost a century. Joining us right now is uh, someone I've been dying to talk to for a very long time, and I'm so glad that he's here with us today. Christopher Rufo is a writer, filmmaker, and he's an activist as well. Um, You see him all over Fox News and, and other places. He is a senior fellow of the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor of the public policy magazine City Journal, which has some of the most important think pieces that you will ever read, including by Chris. He's also the author of, uh, you know, a brand new book, which is why he's here today. And this is perhaps the most important deconstruction of the Marxist cultural revolution. And remember, there are two strains to this revolution. There's economic Marxism and there is cultural Marxism. And it's all of a piece and it's all working together. But he's produced this extraordinary book that takes it all apart. We have been long living through this revolution, and we, we talk about it as it comes to us in various pieces of evidence. But in this book, Chris lays it all, all out, and he tells us how to fight and defeat it. The book is called America's Cultural Revolution, How the Radical Left Conquered Everything, and Chris Rufo joins us now. Chris, I am so happy to have you here. You are a true hero of the Republic. 
Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Well, I am delighted to talk to you too. And I've been dying to do this, like I said, for a very long time, because you have been such a pioneer in exposing and fighting back against uh, ESG, DEI, corporate uh, equity indices, whether it's happening in corporate America, in government, in academia. I know you're very active in Florida now as well, working with Governor DeSantis down there. I want to get into all of it. But this book is so important and there's so much to to talk about here. Let's start with what I just mentioned, which is the basis for what you're talking about, the Marxist revolution that we have been experiencing for a very long time. I've been talking about this like I said, for as long as I can remember. And I'm so glad that you have deconstructed it in your book. So again, there's economic Marxism, cultural Marxism to achieve their ends. Tell us what a cultural revolution is and how Mao Zedong's cultural revolution in China informs what's happening here and what the cultural revolution in America is all about. Great. A a great question. That's exactly the narrative arc of the book is tracing it from when this cultural revolution began in in 1968 to uh, really the summer of George Floyd in 2020, when I think Americans finally started to wake up. They saw critical race theory in the classroom and all of our institutions. um, And and they were really asking, you know, how how did this happen? And um, a cultural revolution is an important evolution in the ideology of Marxism, because after World War II, Um, As Marxist theoreticians and intellectuals in the West began to observe the Soviet Union, for which they had great hopes, um, they became disillusioned and and disappointed and and discouraged because they saw that even the Soviet Union had descended into bureaucratic tyranny, that the promise of uh, class interests being uh, uh, put aside in favor of a universal class um, was not actually working out. And so um, they saw it failing abroad. They also saw that it could not succeed in the U.S. They knew that in the U.S., the middle class and the working class, um, you know, did not want revolution. And in fact, they realized the working class was anti-revolutionary. So they couldn't take over the Ford factories and and run a kind of Soviet or or Russian uh, uh, Marxist style revolution. So they said, well, what avenues do we have left? And they fell upon this strategy that they called the long march to the institutions. Mm-hmm. And both of these, the Cultural Revolution, the Long March of the Institutions, are direct allusions to Mao, Mao Zedong's uh, Long March, uh, winning the Chinese Civil War, and then, of course, his Cultural Revolution in the early 1960s to try to uh, obliterate all of the historical past of China in, in, in the interest of advancing the revolution. They decided that they would make that same strategy in a domestic manner by uh, taking their ideology and infiltrating the institutions, particularly beginning with the universities, going into the K through 12 school districts, uh, getting a foothold in corporate America through what they called at the time racial sensitivity training, which is now DEI training. Um, And they just patiently, decade after decade after decade, worked on this campaign. They got in the institutions. And then in their big moment following the death of George Floyd, it, it, it seems as if they almost revealed it to the world all of the territory that they had taken. Um, They they thought that they had finally won the cultural revolution um, and they were uh, ready to finally come out from the shadows and and publicly and deliberately um, push their ideologies uh, through every institution. And they have. 
Um, you know, and again, this has been going on for a very long time. This did not just originate in the last like decade or so. And what you point out so effectively in this book is that our institutions have been infiltrated by these left-wing intellectuals, activists, militants, who did this slow, long, steady march through our core foundations, all of our institutions, and the culture, Hollywood, movies, television, music, etc. And now big tech, you can add big tech. Uh, on top of the traditional institutions. And the goal was to subvert all of these institutions from within. During this period of time, um, previous decades, we, meaning conservatives, average Americans, the great silent majority, were off busy doing other things, right? We were raising our family. We were starting uh, small businesses. Uh, we were engaged in other things, and we weren't particularly focused on what they were doing, and they liked it like that. Now, uh, the sleeping giant has been awoken, and the great silent majority is is more keenly aware of what is happening. But as I look at your book... Um, it's so clear, Chris, that now the, the result of this is that our institutions are becoming dangerously unmoored. And the average American is now under salt from all of them, all of the institutions that matter, that are supposed to protect the average citizen and his family, the government, the workplace, the church, the schools, the home. We are literally surrounded, are we not? Yeah, that unfortunate. I wish we weren't, but unfortunately, that that's exactly right. And and that's the suffocating feeling that I think so many conservatives, in particular, have had. But not just conservatives. Many people in the in the center or or the you know classical liberals um, are also feeling um, betrayed and besieged and surrounded by these ideologies. And they sense that these ideologies are uh, uh, harmful uh, to themselves, their families, their workplaces their productivity, uh, their infrastructure even, um, but they are looking for a way out. And the the basic kind of driving uh, ambition of the book is to provide this the public from all political stripes um, a, a very detailed, uh, comprehensive, but kind of exciting and readable uh, narrative of exactly how the institutions have been deranged, exactly why it seems like all of them from the private sector to the public sector to um, uh, to social life to, to personal and family life have all been suddenly gripped uh, by these ideologies. And it's not uh, by accident. It's not at random. But in fact, it's part of a longstanding, slow and deliberate political strategy. And, and, and my point for conservatives is that if you want to defeat it, you first have to understand it. Right. And if you want to understand it, it's quite helpful to know where it comes from. And so that's what I've uh, really unfolded and, and laid out for people uh, in this book. Yeah, and you do it in such a rich, comprehensive way, Chris. Um, let's talk a little bit about how how race became such a key element to this entire agenda and this push to remake the country. Um, right now, we've got this insidious mix of Marxism, communism, and racialist ideology. They have replaced equality with equity, whatever that means. And they've convinced millions of Americans that racism is just, it's institutional, it's endemic to our society. To what end? Why did they go after the race lever? Because it's the most emotional, sensitive, and therefore effective lever? 
Yeah, first and foremost, uh, of course. Yeah, they they were they were looking for a new um, strategy, and 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 what what they called it at the time, they were looking for a new revolutionary subject. And so, of course, the object, the goal was was the Marxist revolution. But 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 in in the United States, the under Orthodox Marxism, it would have it would have meant that they would have had. Um, you know, the, the white working class industrial worker, he was kind of the median or modal a proletarian figure in the sense that he, um, uh, you know, Marx would have considered that kind of person the ideal type for revolution. That person in the United States after World War II was actually doing very well. Um, he had a, a stable family life. He had a rich civic and community life. He had a rising and, and solid wages, really unprecedented wages. He had a house, a car, a refrigerator, a television. Um, he had no interest in, 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 in revolution. And so they said, well, we need to find a new revolutionary subject. And, and, and actually is, is a two-part subject. They said, we need to have alienated, upper-class, white um, uh, intellectuals within the universities, particularly the, the young kind of student population. And then also the alienated, cast out, downtrodden, um, inner city, black, uh, lumpen proletariat. Um, is what what they called it at the time, and these two these two groups together, the white intelligentsia and the black underclass, could come together and form a new revolutionary subject, a new proletariat, because they were taking the the anxieties and the guilt um, from that upper upper class uh, uh, part of the coalition, and then also the the, the sense of, of 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 outrage and resentment. Um, uh, you know, at, at the lower part of the coalition, and they believe that they could bring it together. And it's quite interesting when you see BLM in 2020; it's the same pattern. I mean, this is the same. The, the, the same strategy has been their strategy. The same coalition dynamics has been their coalition um, since that earliest times uh, of this revolution in the 1960s. Is that why America's you know wealthy white uh, elite? Uh, you know, especially the coastal white elites only want to talk about race and everything is related to race. In fact, yesterday I was watching the House Oversight Committee, Chris, and obviously the Democrats have no facts on the Joe and, and Hunter Biden uh, deep, deep corruption that they were covering. So there were so many on the Democratic side who just veered off into completely irrelevant stuff like I talked about today in my monologue, including race. Oh, the incarceration rate for minorities is so disproportional. That had nothing to do, it was completely irrelevant to, you know, the, the subject of the hearing. And yet every single time they go down this road. So they have made it central to their revolution and it's been very effective, right? It has been very effective. And I think because there's, there's a, an element of truth to what they're saying. I mean, very obviously, I think, you know, uh, uh, anyone with even a cursory knowledge of American history would agree is, you know, America has, uh, you know, has a, a, a very kind of dark and disturbing past on issues of race. Of course, slavery, segregation um, uh, should not be minimized. Conservatives should be very uh, honest in confronting these uh, these these challenges. And of course, these were human universals. And you, you can make an argument. And, and I think it's a correct one that the West um, in general and America in particular did more to advance the cause uh, than, than anywhere else on the planet. Um, but at, but at the same time, there's there's an element of truth. But what they do is they distort the truth. Mm -hmm. They exploit the truth. They treat the truth as a tool, as a means to an end. 
Um, and then and then they provide a solution that actually makes these problems much worse. Um, and so we, while we should be honest uh, in confronting the, the true history, we should not be manipulated into 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 um, uh, just listening to to anyone and, and to be manipulated at a political level. Um, and but but it is effective and it's still effective. And I think one of the most interesting parts of the research for the book for me was that um, the vocabulary of the BLM movement in 2020, systemic racism, white privilege, racial disparities, police brutality, white supremacy, all of the, the vocabulary, the exact phrases were already there in 1968 from people like Angela Davis, Eldridge Cleaver, the Black Panther Party, the Black Liberation Army. Um, they had conceived of this entire vocabulary um, and I detail exactly how it developed at that early time it disappeared from the public discourse for, for 30, 40 years. It just burrowed away in academia silently and invisibly and then reemerged in 2020. And a lot of people thought, oh, this is the first time these are new ideas. These aren't new. It's not even new ideas. They're not even new words and phrases. Um, and so it's very instructive to understand the, the lineage, the etymology of these things. Yes. Um, and if you can understand that, then you have actually a greater defense because you don't have to feel bowled over by them. Or, or intimidated by them. Um, these are these are not intimidating ideas once you pick them apart. Um, and so that's that's really one of the things that I hope people take away from reading this, that I, I don't have to be intimidated or feel guilted or shamed by these ideas. In fact, these are very human ideas with, with sordid origins and they have disastrous conclusions. And so you can actually fight the fight uh, on that ground. It's all the same rolling Marxist movement. So I'm really glad that you pointed out how it expressed itself in the 1960s with Angela Davis and the Black Power Movement, um, and now BLM um, and its sister organization, Antifa. It's The faces may change. People die. They get de-radicalized, whatever. But the movement is exactly the same. It is the same movement. Let's talk a little bit, Chris, about Black Lives Matter. Um, you address this in the book. Uh, Black Lives Matter and Antifa are both Marxist organizations, right? A little, there's there's a, there's a bit of a wrinkle. So BLM is a Marxist organization. Um, you know, they say they're a Marxist organization. And in fact, um, uh, you know, they've not only ad admitted they're trained Marxists, they trained with Eric Mann. That was he, that was the teacher. Um, they, they, their mentor was Angela Davis. Uh, she also was one of their teachers. And then they've said themselves, BLM, Black Lives Matter, is the same movement as the Black Liberation Movement in the 1960s, the kind of Marxist-Leninist Black radicals, uh, really embodied in the book, at least, by Angela Davis. And they say, very famously, BLM, BLM. This is the same movement. Antifa's a bit different. They're an anarchist movement, um, anti-fascist movement, anarchist movement, kind of white radical movement. Um, it's a different political philosophy, um, but they found common cause, just as they did back in the 1960s. And so this is, I think, in some sense, the same coalition that we were talking about earlier. Antifa uh, in, in places like Seattle, uh, you know, where I live in the Seattle area and in Portland, Oregon, it's a white uh, middle class college educated movement of people who are alienated, disillusioned, downwardly mobile, uh, uh, mentally ill in many cases, um, have a penchant for violence and antisocial behavior. Um, uh, it, it, while BLM 
at least in its most violent expressions, um, is a an inner city movement, predominantly obviously African American, that and uh, and and more analogous to the Black Panther Party. Um, um, and so the coalition changes, the the names change, the people change, but the basic pattern is the same. Um, it hasn't changed for more than fifty years. Yep, that is exactly right. Um... Yeah, exactly right. And again, the face has changed, but the movement remains the same. And this is part of the global Marxist revolution that has literally been going on since Karl Marx put pen to paper. Um, the left, uh, so much of what communists do, and the communists left in this country is no exception, they go after the children. They they got to get them young. They've got to get them indoctrinated young so that then they have a standing army for the rest of that child's life. They will be a standing army for the Marxist revolution, for the leftist ideology. That's why um, so much of America's educational system has been infiltrated. The left put so many resources into this decades-long takeover of higher education. So they started at the university level, and then it went all the way down to now preschool. I remember years ago, uh, Chris, I was doing a national radio show, and I had a caller call in and say, it was right before Thanksgiving, and the caller said, my kindergartner was just told that Thanksgiving was the first socialist redistributionist holiday. So they started at the collegiate level and went all the way down. So now in nursery school, your kids are being indoctrinated. Can you talk to us about uh, how the Marxists really did this, how they took over the, the unions, the schools, all of it to indoctrinate your kids, not just on leftist ideology, but now the trans agenda and everything else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And those things go hand in hand. But yeah. You know, the, the story is quite simple. Um, and in a way, I, I developed in the research for this book a grudging um, and qualified uh, admiration for some of these figures because they at least took the question of education seriously. Um, the, the, their basic insight is actually correct. Um, how you educate your kids matters. Um, and so conservatives dropped the ball. They stopped participating. They stopped creating new schools. They didn't they didn't run for school board. They didn't uh, become uh, a part of the teaching core, and they essentially delegated the entire education system to people who, uh, you know, hate and want to uh, undermine and subvert their values. And the, the left, meanwhile, they said we're going to have university-educated people be our core uh, uh, political base. We're going to take over the graduate schools of education that train teachers. We're going to take over the uh, teachers' unions that represent teachers as a political force, and we're going to get. Uh, those those everyday teachers and administrators in the K through 12 school system um, aligned with our movement, educated into our movement. We're going to create the teaching materials, the textbooks, the the exams. I mean, every facet of, of education, we're going to produce those materials. And so it's not even so much a, a process of indoctrination that you might imagine like the, you know, in the Korean War, uh, you know, when you've been captured by a, the, the the Chinese they, 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 you know, do water torture and they, they make you repeat slogans and it's all very, um, very direct. It's a process of indoctrination by removing any alternative. And this is a, actually the most sophisticated way to indoctrinate. Um, it's, it's, it's just closing the minds of kids or even adults to any other possibility. 
And so when you have a system that is saturated to the, to the degree that it is now with only one ideology, um, you know, just in some kids, you know, probably I would be one of those kids would seek, seek out uh, uh, proactively some kind of uh, uh, alternative and rebel against an orthodoxy if I sensed it. Um, but most kids will simply grow up with the values that are instilled in them. And, and, and I always tell folks, especially parents, having looked at this deeply and written, you know, 100 plus pages now in the book on education in particular, um, you know, take the education of your kids seriously. Take it as seriously, if not more seriously, uh, than your adversaries. And so um, luckily, so many parents are now doing that. They saw through my reporting on CRT in schools um, and then through uh, their own observation uh, uh, during COVID and after COVID, parents are saying, wait a minute, the public school system is not the one that I grew up with. Um, uh, it's been radicalized um, and it is now actively hostile to my values. And so they're seeking alternatives. Yep. And they're awake now. I, I always say we're awake, not woke. <laughs> Let them be be woke. But more and more Americans are now really paying attention to what's going on in schools, in the culture, and everything else. Just look at the success of Sound of Freedom. Look at the success of Jason Aldean's uh, Try That in a Small Town single. We are now feeling our own power to push back. And there are more of us than there are of them. Yes, they control pretty much every lever of power, but we've got tremendous power of our own. And now we're starting to feel it. Um, in our remaining moments with you, Chris, let's talk about Orwell. I noticed the other day that uh, Elon Musk tweeted out a picture of a baseball cap that said, make Orwell fiction again. And uh, while we can laugh at that, the, the sad reality, the dangerous reality is we are living in an Orwellian environment. And what the left has done is done these Orwellian language tricks. The left always says progress is not progress. Equality is not equality. Speech is violence. Violence is speech. I mean, all, all of it, the, the complete inversion of what language actually means. Can you speak to that and how they manipulate language and what we can do about it, how we can be more aware? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's really the one of the running threads throughout the entire book is I, I, I take apart the language of the left. I, I, I show the reader what they're saying, why they're saying it, what it really means, what are the ideas that are under the surface of these uh, kind of falsified and misleading words and phrases. Um, and so I spend a lot of time digging into the very specifics about how language works. And and and, and look, you, I mean, you, you and I both know this uh, through our longstanding practice and experience in politics, the left has a, a, a base of, of people, human beings, with very high verbal skills. Um, I mean, they're, they're very good at language, at narrative, at storytelling, at creating emotionally resident, resonant um, uh, words and phrases. And, um, it, it, and so to combat it, we have to have, um, we have to reach kind of uh, verbal armed parity. So, you know, in, in the sense that, you know, we had nuclear parity with the Soviet Union, Parity meaning, you know, equal forces uh, uh, with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Well, we need equal verbal forces uh, to the left. And unfortunately, on the right, people, I think the right can be characterized more accurately as a kind of strong, silent type, um, someone who is more connected to tradition, um, someone who operates by intuition and values and custom. 
um, is really good at managing institutions, having responsibility over 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 uh, families and institutions. Um, but 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 the downside of that character type is is lacking a bit in in verbal sophistication and fox like uh, skills. And so we need we have the lions, uh, but we need the foxes on our side. Um, and and I think that that will be the way where we can break apart the language and kind of break this spell that so many people are under. Is there anything else, and this is our last question for you, so we can let you go, Chris. Um, is there anything else that the average American can do to help turn this all around? Yeah. Oh, I mean, the, the, all of this depends on the average American. It's not just as they can the average American do something. I mean, this whole thing depends on you, um, the person listening right now. Um, and, and I just recommend that the truly conservative approach to solving these problems is to work in concentric circles, starting at the innermost. Um, get yourself in order first. Uh, figure out your principles. Um, figure out your the, the values that you live by. Figure out um, how you can organize uh, your own family, your own, your own people in, in your immediate um, uh, surroundings and work together and improve that. Then go out into your local institutions um, your church, your workplace, where your kids go to school, your civic organizations, your your, your town or your city, um, and 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 really start uh, working to to improve those and to bring your values to those, and then we can move out to some of these bigger national questions. Um, but ultimately, people live um, uh, in and they're situated in their local environment. You, you know, you probably engage with a hundred people, maybe one hundred and fifty people in your day-to-day life, you know, um, uh, over and over and over, wherever you are. So influence those people, work together with those people, um, and then stand on principle. Get used to saying no when you see something wrong. Get used to saying, this is what we need to do. We're drawing a line and, and, and we're going to do it. Um, because the, 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 the left succeeds by um, when, when, when good people don't stand up right. and draw a line and a limit. And so don't be afraid to draw limits. Don't be afraid to say, this is the principle here that we're doing. Don't be afraid to, you know, when it, when it's required, make the hard calls and, 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 you know, sometimes firing people or excluding uh, people from institutions that are actively hostile to those institutions. You, you, you can't have, for example, a Marxist teacher in a traditionalist Catholic school. I mean, that ideology is not compatible. And so, um, we have to get used to sometimes making those hard calls. Absolutely. And it does require a lot of courage. So courage. Edmund Burke, to paraphrase him, he famously said, uh, evil triumphs when good men do nothing. And it is, it's, it's local. I mean, we're all focused on the globalist entities that are evil and, and our national leadership, which is fundamentally evil, but it all comes down in the end to us. And as we're showing through the culture, we really do have a lot of power more than we know, and we can exercise it, but it does require courage and faith. Um, Chris, I love your book. It is so important. Everybody, please go get it. It's available now wherever you get your books. It's called America's Cultural Revolution, How the Radical Left Conquered Everything. You need to know what's going on to be armed for the future because future is, is pretty grim, and we need all hands on deck to understand what we're up against and the tools to fight back. Chris Rufo, you are amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
Okay, another big show done. I want to thank you guys so much for being here as always. And please go out and enjoy another beautiful summer weekend wherever you are. Time flies, goes really fast. So really spend every moment enjoying it. And the summer is flying by too, so really enjoy it. Uh, And you can tell all your friends, family, and colleagues to enjoy it partly by listening to the Monica Crowley podcast. So grateful for you guys. All right, terrific weekend. I will see you right back here on Tuesday with a huge show on digital ID and how far down the track it is. I'm going to bring you exactly what you need to know, what is going on, what it means for you, and how we can fight back against that as well. All right, plus next week, another big show on happiness, because Lord knows we need more of that. So big shows coming up here next week on the Monica Crowley podcast. I will see you then. Be well. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.